Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of Plot Devices, the show here on Spotify, Apple TV podcasts, wherever you're listening to the Sky Clouds. I don't know where you listen to your podcasts. They're everywhere these days. We talk film and TV news, all things in the entertainment world, and maybe have some popcorn as a result. You can't see us. We're not on video yet. Joining me today is one of our co-hosts, uh, Samantha Corvaya. Sam, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Excited to talk about all the things. As am I, as is our third, uh, Noah Guzman, with his coffee beside him. Uh, are you feeling good, Noah? I'm wide awake, Brandon. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm tuned in. I hope all the listeners are tuned in. I cannot wait to talk about movies. That's right. We're, pe- we're talking movies, so pay attention as we're pointing <laughs> to you angrily. Uh, but no, we're actually starting off with not movies. I lied to you all. Uh, we're talking TV <gasps> first. Brandon. Uh, yes, uh, if you're just tuning in, I'm a liar. Uh <laughs> We are, of course, talking the 73rd Emmys, which actually just broadcast the night prior to our last episode coming out. Premiered last week on CBS. We all watched it, or at least, you know, saw the nominees for it. The Crown proved to be an absolute juggernaut with voters. It won seven Emmys that night, sweeping all of the dramatic categories, including winning uh, for Best Drama Series as well as Outstanding Lead Actress for Olivia Coleman. On the comedy side of things, Apple TV solidified their place on the on the uh, award stage, I should say. Ted Lasso took home uh, four awards, including for Best Comedy Series and Outstanding Lead Actor for Jason Sudeikis. Other big winners of the night were Hacks and Merit Easttown, both from uh, HBO and HBO Max, with uh, three wins each, as well as uh, The Queen's Gambit for Netflix and HBO, once again, with uh, Last Week Today with John Oliver, both taking home uh, two wins each. Uh, I want to get to uh, Noah first, because uh, I know that we were actually talking in our pre-production meeting about how we should not be talking about this because many of us have not seen a lot of these shows. But uh, I do want to get your thoughts on the show as a whole, the winners as a whole, and um, what you uh, essentially thought. Yes, thank you, Brandon. I'm taking a look at the, you know, the list of winners and nominations. It's amazing to see the nominations for uh, Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen from WandaVision. Unfortunately, I don't believe they took home any wins. No, they that did being, not, unfortunately. That being said, there are some other shows that uh, I'm just having a blast reading that they were nominated. Um, Lovecraft Country, uh, Pen15, and a show I recently started and cannot stop binging is the um, awarded upon awarded RuPaul's Drag Race. And I believe that RuPaul has just marked history as being the uh, most decorated winner um, being a person of color. And that uh, that's amazing. You know, I recommend any listener who wants to uh, witness the, the the joy, the beauty that comes out of the drag race culture of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race is just a, a wonderful show to get a lot of laughs and also become really inspired by all these artists. Fortunately, there are some shows that, uh, you know, some of the most decorated shows like Ted Lasso, Hacks. Um, and of course, we do have that Hamilton win uh, from the recording of Hamilton and that I mean, myself, I had a such a good time watching. Uh, it took home Outstanding Variety special, and I think that that is totally deserved. So um, coming out of here, I just know that there are some shows that clearly I need to start tuning into because, uh, for one, The Crown is always rewarded, but surprisingly, I have not uh, started that series. But a lot of members of my family have, and they only have good things to say. Of course, all these awards must mean something. So that's, I think, the show coming out of this um, award ceremony. That's the show I do want to turn my ear towards. And then, you know, this did mark, this did become a conversation over social media because of all of the nominations for people of color, but they did not take home the awards. So I know that that's a topic of conversation. Sam, what were your reactions from the Emmy? 
Yeah. So I feel pretty similar as I think everybody in this room where it's like, I haven't really seen many of these shows, um, which is, I know it's then I, I, Love, love, love that uh, the Queen's Gambit was honored, though, because like Noah mentioned, that is something that I did watch and I absolutely loved it. I mean, between the the cinematography, all of us went to J school, spoiler alert in here. And so it's I think it's so satisfying for us because, you know, they do their rule of thirds really well <laughs> in this movie. Um, but then otherwise, you know, the acting is also just phenomenal. So that's why I feel like we see a lot of like Anya Taylor-Joy everywhere. And she is one of the busiest actresses that right now, um, one of the most booked. And um, we'll actually, I'm sure, talk about her a little bit more later with some of our news too. But um, yeah, I'm just very excited that Queen's Gambit got um, some recognition where it's due. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I'm not really surprised by the crowd because I feel like the crown in the last few, you know, like the last couple of years, they have won a lot of their nominations. And, uh, you know, with the crown, I think I've watched like the first season, I believe it was. And for some reason, I never went back to it. So that's something I definitely got to go with. But with this year's Emmys, what surprised me the most was that we had like large lists of like some of the most diverse nominations on here for like actors and, and everything in between, but none of them really got honored. It was overwhelmingly people um, who happen to be white. And so it's just like, I, I don't know. I find that really interesting. And I know that made a lot of people mad too, as, as understandably so, you know, and especially cause there's so much recognition, but that also goes to say that these, um, these people who did win, it's not saying that they didn't deserve it. It's just kind of surprising when, you know, there's this effort to make things more diverse everywhere in Hollywood and then things like this happen. And I could understand why people um, feel like they might not be able to trust the, those pledges that people would tout in Hollywood. So that's just kind of a bummer in my opinion, but otherwise, you know, with the Emmys, I think it was really, a lot of these wins were predictable in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, between Hamilton, between Blackish, between I will just I may destroy you, which did uh, earn a very well deserved nod in writing. Uh, shout out to Michaela Cole, she's amazing. Uh, with maybe one of the best speeches of the night, uh, which I saw a lot of people raving about on uh, online, and I could not agree more. I think she's I think she's and she's actually going to pop up in Black Panther too. So all the sets in the world for her. As someone, I, I watched the entire ceremony, and I got to tell you, it was fine. Um, a lot of things did not work. I. I like Cedric the Entertainer. I do. I do not think he knew what he was doing that night, or at the very least, he was not getting great material to work with. Um, I maybe laughed at two of the jokes, one of which was with the Shit's Creek cast. I thought they were really funny. I will say, as far as Queen's Gambit stuff goes, I am very happy. At, you know, I'm very happy at one. I'm like, you guys, I really, really enjoy the show. Ani Taylor-Joy, I think, absolutely deserved all the acclaim in the world. Scott Frank, though, I don't know if you guys saw his speech. No, I never ended up seeing the speech, so I am excited to hear your yeah, thoughts. Please, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little mad at Scott Frank. This was, they handed out directing and writing right before each other. And Scott Frank went for directing for Queen's Gambit. Michaela Cole was going to win for uh, I May Destroy You. We all know the playoff music that everyone hates. And, you know, uh, a lot of people during the night were kind of, you know, giving the finger to it and like, yeah, that's great. In my opinion, you can do it once. Doing it three times is just excessive, especially right before another major, major category at the show. And if you listen to Scott's speech, it is nice. Like, he's being genuine. He's legitimately trying to praise everyone. And I was just thinking to myself, dude, please just close your mouth and let people go there. Especially considering 
his show won the last award of the night in best uh, limited series and he was able to go up again and i'm sure he felt terrible for that as he should i like scott frank a lot but that was a terrible decision on his part so would you say that it is like the worst speech of the night is that the honor that it goes to to scott frank <laughs> i would i, I would because i think a lot of the other speeches were like really gen- olivia coleman's was wonderful who also gave michaela cole a shout out thank you very much most of the speeches for the crown were actually really, you know, well deserved, and I thought really nice. Um, again, uh, who else is giving? Uh, John Oliver, who again, I am I think John Oliver's show is one of the best, if not the best, late night television shows on network right now. So anytime he gets wins, I'm incredibly happy for him. Uh, I don't know if you saw. Conan. We stand John Oliver real quick, throwing that in there. <laughs> Obviously, thank you. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw Conan kind of like jumping around like a court jester throughout the entire ceremony, but he was kind of stealing the show a little bit. And yeah, some really, the In Memoriam tribute I thought was really good with uh, John Baptiste and uh, and Leon Bridges. I thought it was really respectful, really well-paced, really well done. And then as far as just other wins that I was shocked by, I was shocked that um that Ewan McGregor won for Halston. Because uh, I, I don't know about you guys, I know no people at all who have been talking about Halston. Uh, and so I, I guess it was just a thing that the Academy rooted for, especially because that was the one category that I thought WandaVision had an actual chance in with Paul Bettany. Because I didn't think Hamilton was just going to take it. I, I didn't think Ewan McGregor was going to take it. So I figured that could be the one shot. Obviously, it got shut out. And that goes to a larger conversation of, you know, like the revolutionary genre styling that it was and how the Academy, I still think, is not totally ready for that. And that's a shame. Uh, on the pleasant side, though, I did watch the first couple episodes of Hacks. And I was sure that Ted Lasso was going to sweep comedy. So once, you know, if they were announcing all the wins for Hacks, I was like, great. I love Gene Smart. I think the writing for this is terrific. So good on them i hope to finish the show and hope it's just as good so all in all and then of course there's you know the larger issue of you know yes we have an incredibly diverse field of nominees and incredibly diverse you know industry that is becoming more so and then it's a sea of white for the winners and i think i think for viewers and i think for people who are looking to the emmys as some kind of pinnacle yeah i i don't think that's going to help them in the long run i really don't think it's going to help studios in the long run with their promotional efforts it does make me go come on academy and to wrap, I wanted to mention Michaela Cole, that though I haven't seen um, I May Destroy You, I've seen Chewing Gum and she writes that show. And that show is like, I remember watching it for the first time and being blown away because of uh, how hilarious and like fresh that show was. So, so happy to see that she's got a writing, a writing win. Totally. And I, I do need to watch Chewing Gum. I've heard actually really good things about it. We are going to move on then to our second major story and the one that basically broke the internet. Um Super Mario Bros. is confirmed to get a movie, and we have people attached. Let's read them off. Uh, as part of its as part of its recent Nintendo Direct, the uh, video game company confirmed several details about its upcoming Mario film with Illumination Entertainment. Of course, the studio behind uh, Secret Life of Pets, the Despicable Me franchise, uh, Sing, the upcoming Sing Two, because that's going to be a thing. Uh, most importantly, came the announcement of the cast and crew behind the project. We have uh, Teen Titans Go to the Movies directors uh, Aaron Horvath and Michael uh, Jelinich. I apologize, but uh, the guys behind Teen Titans go to the movies. They are going to be directing from a script from uh, Matthew Fogel, who is responsible for the upcoming uh, Minions 3. And then we get to the film's voice cast, which, again, has thrown the entire internet into a titsy. We have uh, Chris Pratt voicing Mario. We have Charlie Day, uh, of course, uh, from It's Sunny in Philadelphia and a bunch of other things voicing uh, Luigi. We have the aforementioned Ani Taylor-Joy voicing uh, Princess Peach. Jack Black is going to be voicing Bowser as well as longtime Mario voice actor uh, Charles Martinet, who will be popping up in, quote, multiple surprise cameos throughout the project. They did not elaborate on how big the role was, but he will be a part of it. Uh, we did also get a teaser poster with a release date for holidays of 2022. Once again, uh, no actual footage has actually been released yet. We just got more crew attached and basically Nintendo saying, 
this is happening. These are the people involved and we're excited. Uh, Sam, I want to go to you first as sort of our, you know, big resident gamer. I have a lot of comments. <laughs> so in the sake of, of time with our podcast, <clears throat> I think I was seeing stars because overall the Nintendo Direct, really good. I think it was one of the best ones that we've ever had in in quite a long time, in a few years. So I think I was still seeing stars after they announced the 3D Kirby game. And so when I saw that they finally announced the movie, I'm like, oh, yay, more movie news. Awesome. Great. So I was super pumped. I'm like, great, holiday 2022. And so I was just excited because, like, I mean, Illumination hasn't made some of my most favorite animated movies. I did really enjoy Secret Life of Pets. I'm not as big a fan of Minions. I'm kind of a Minions hater, but like, you know, I was excited. I just wanted to see what they could do with the Mario movie. So um, I was like, awesome. Holiday 2022. Let's do this. And then immediately after they're like, Chris Pratt is Mario. I'm like, why? Nintendo, why? (laughs) So immediately I, I felt betrayed. And then I saw Anya Taylor Joy. I'm like, okay, I could totally see that. That that's a really good cast. And then like Charlie Day is Luigi. And it just felt like it was a joke. The more they announced more people attached to this movie, because Charlie Day, as we know, he's like chaotic and and it's always sunny. And so I just think it's hilarious because Luigi's known as this really timid brother. And I'm just like, this will be fun because maybe, you know, it'll be a 180 for a lot of Charlie Day's typecasting. So I'm excited to see what they might do with that or if they're going to turn Luigi into this like really really chaotic guy i don't know we'll see but uh yeah i just i i think it's hilarious how much the internet is blowing up over these casts i'm seeing like edits of like all these other actors work i saw this funny clip with keegan michael key and somebody edited it with toad's voice for aa ron like that aa ron clip and it was so stupid and i'm seeing things like that everywhere with with uh, chris pratt and everything and honestly i i just think that the whole thing is kind of an insult to voice actors because Charles Martinet, he's Mario. He set that precedent. And it's like, why didn't you just give him the voice? Why didn't you just give him the job? I mean, that's cool that you nod him somehow. I think people would have been more mad if he wasn't even involved in the project, but still like, just give him the Mario role. Why do you have to have put Chris Pratt in there? And it's, I don't know. To me, it just, I feel bad because it's like, you could have had a lot of different voice actors attached to this. And instead we had big Hollywood names. So interesting. I have more thoughts, but that's all I'm going with for now. <laughs> so how, how about you guys? I'll toss it up to anybody. Noah, as someone who I saw shaking your fist at the idea of Minions and Mario, please give us your thought on Minions and Mario. Politefully, I am also on the hate train for the Minions verse. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. It's not It's not anything to do with Illumination's uh, animation. Uh, I did watch the Despicable Me's. And I'm fond of them. I have younger siblings who do watch those sh- movies on repeat. Thankfully, neither of the m- films are the Minions film. Um, I don't know. I guess I have like this like personal vendetta against Minions, like for just dominating my headspace when I don't want them to. Um, they were a cute like sidekick when I first saw that when when the first film came out, but then they just became so spot spotlighted that I think. I got tired of them. Like I was getting fatigued of the minions. Um, but that's just, I mean, who cares? Who cares how I feel? 23 year old name, minion hater. Speaking on the Mario cast list, it's, I mean, yes, we're all fans of Queen's Gambit. We're all, I mean, I'm fans of the Vavavitch. So I love Anya Taylor Joy. We're going to flip, we're going to flip out of our seats when we all watched last night in Soho. Cannot wait for that, by the way. Um, so I loved to see that cast listing. It's funny on the internet. So many memes were in the style of, 
look at how we won. And it was Anya Taylor-Joy as Princess Peach. And it says, but at what cost? <laughs> and it'll show a picture, a screen grab of Chris Pratt being announced as Mario. Um, I mean, yeah, I think the most... I mean, I, I, we could complain over the casting uh, in terms of like big named Hollywoods and why they went with Chris Pratt. Um, but I think to, to Sam's point and, and Brandon, uh, I'm sure you'll you'll share the same ideals. This could have this should have been a win for uh, voice actors to really make the transition to like larger, larger pictures. Um, it's a shame because immediately when I read the cast list, I just ran with, oh, it's a live action because we're getting all these big Hollywood names. But we're not. We're, we're, they're still just providing uh, their voices to the cast, and so then it just puts a big question mark on my head. Like, there's people who are who are like well versed for decades in this industry, and the lack of recognition is just like insulting at this point to them. Uh, so, so I think that's 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 my new position on it. You know, it the cast list is what it is. We you know Chris Pratt isn't going anywhere, unfortunately, and he's going to be uh, voicing Mario. Uh, and then Charlie Day, I do like Charlie Day. I did love him in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But I think his voice is just so, uh, it's it's hard for me. I mean, can can I judge him for having that voice that I only characterize with that chaotic energy? I mean, I don't know if I can, because that's all really that, that we're used to seeing him. And I think even in Horrible Bosses, I got the same vibe from him. Um, and that was back when, I don't know, more than, more than a handful of years ago. Um, other notes from this are just... Um, I'm happy to see Illumination take on a new project that is uh, not, you know, from the Despicable Me verse. Brandon, uh, this cast is a meme, and not even the meme, the cast itself is a meme. And like a lot of great memes, uh, it sh- I- it covers a sense of sadness and cynicism about it. it. It's a good thing for yesterday when I saw again just so much creativity online, and I, I don't know if you saw like a Chris Miller who directed the Lego Movie put out the mini figures of Charlie Day and Chris Proud. She's like, they're reunited. And I'm like, that's genius. Or like how my friend sent me uh, a video of a uh, toad singing all I want for Christmas is you. And I was like, it's a holiday release that could happen. And it's illumination who loves their modern day pop songs. Uh, needless to say, I like this on paper when it becomes this though. And when you specifically get Charles Martinet, but tell him he's not going to be Mario and don't even elaborate on how big of a role he's going to have in that. I get very worried. Then you then you pile an illumination on there, who I I have been vocally critical of in the past, and I do like some of their projects. And you know, I I don't hate the Spicoli franchise. Like I find the minions kind of endearing, but not nearly to the extent that so many other audiences do. I didn't like their Grinch project, and that is what worries me the most about this. Because once the Grinch happened, it was that sense of oh, suddenly you're taking beloved IPs and putting Benedict Cumberbatch. And, you know, it becomes like that kind of thing that we've all been, you know, cynically judging about. And I will continue to cynically judge about it because, again, it takes away so much prospects from voice actors and actresses who give their lives to these characters and to these companies. And then when the opportunity to get a bigger audience and a bigger platform comes out, they are shoved to the wayside or put to a surprise cameo here and there. Uh, Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I I like most of the cast. If Jack Black does not have a villain song, this movie is pointless. I'm putting it out there. Everything else to me is, you know, again, it's a meme and I can only judge it for that. I, I hope that when that first teaser comes out, it, it is Illumination stepping up their animation game because I feel like for so long it's been the same kind of edging, the same kind of character designs between, you know, Sing and everything. And I hope we see something more exciting with this. I just can't be too optimistic. And this may, you know, 
sort of point to the conversation, maybe it won't. Are either of you aware of any Mario uh, media out there aside from the video games, like a like a watch, like a story, a TV show, a movie? You mean the movie? Is the there movie? A movie? There's a movie. The eclectic movie. Wait, do you, no, wait, no, you that's, and that's live action, right? I think. Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, live action. I remember a movie. Okay, no, I remember the movie. Okay. I don't want to talk too much about the movie. I wanted to talk about how you imagine the Mario film can be done in an animated style. So if either of you have any thoughts on that, I mean, that's what I'm thinking about in my head. How do you? It's a great question though. Cause it's like, I'd be honestly, I think I'd be worried if it was yet another video game movie where they're placed outside of their world that they're known for that to me, I think it would bother me if that's where the plot would go, but no, that's a great question. Where the heck is this plot going? (laughs) So Mario's so like, I think stylistic in its different worlds. Like there's so many, there's so many vast different styles of backgrounds and territories, music. I wonder how they'll balance that in a full feature length film. The fact that they have, because did you guys see Teen Titans go to the movies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Minor spoiler for that. That involves like multiversal thing and like, you know, but weird, like meta commentary. And I almost wonder if they're taking some kind of approach to that where it's like, oh, it's, you know, Mario and Luigi going through like the galaxy verse and going through like the Olympics verse and like that kind of like, I wonder if that's going to be part of it only because of the directors involved. But I think it's gonna be much more simple than that. The kids are into their metaverses these days. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Hey, the kids are nerdier than when we were kids. <laughs> you know what? I, I will actually pose the question before we move on. Then, if you can pick one other character that hasn't been announced yet to be in this movie, who do you pick? Daisy. I might also go Daisy. Actually, sorry, that was like an immediate like Daisy because it's just like she's amazing and needs more love. Give us Baby Bowser. What's Baby? What's Bowser Junior's name? Bowser Junior. <laughs> uh huh. It's usually Bowser Junior. Yeah, I'm ready I for the, that, that dynamic between evil dad Bowser. Jack Black's Bowser, um, who I am not upset about. I mean, I, I'm happy that at least, you know, we, we do have Jack Black, who I, um, I'm fond of. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to see that. Sure. Voiced by like Finn Wolfhard or something like that. Like that's basically consistent with all of this. We are going to move on from there into our third major topic. Uh, Fantastic Beast 3. It is still coming. It is still happening. It's wrapped filming, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And we now have a new title and release date. Uh, Fantastic Beasts 3 is now known as Fantastic Beasts and the Secrets of Dumbledore, and it is now set to come out uh, on April 15, 2022. Uh, it's been pushed forward, I should say, three months from July 2022 up to uh, April now. The film will take place a few years after the events of the Crimes of Grindelwald from uh, 2018. It will see Newt Scamander, Dumbledore, and their allies facing off against the army of uh, Grindelwald and you know evil wizards and all that, all right on the cusp of World War II Europe. Uh, David Yates is set to direct from the previous installments, as well as the cast members of Eddie Redmayne. Catherine Watterson, Allison Sudol, Dan Fogler, Jessica Williams, Callum Turner, Ezra Miller, and Jude Law. In addition, Mads Mikkelsen will step into the villainous role of Grindelwald, succeeding the previous actors, uh, Colin Farrell and Johnny Depp. Uh, Noah, I want to get to start with you, uh, because I want to actually ask you, have you caught up on Fantastic Beasts yet? Yes, I've seen Fantastic Beasts, the first film, and nothing more. Um, I, I think all I have to say on this one is, uh, you know, it, it's it's no it's no secret that a lot of um, the news or updates around Fantastic Beasts has kind of been like, I don't want to say overshadowed, but some some aspect of shadowing is happening because of uh, the 
um, abuse that Johnny Depp has suffered from his former partner. Um, and then that even carries over into other franchises and other films that are popping up on our news feeds. Um, but that being said, I know that the Fantastic Beast is like a, um, like a cherished iteration of the Harry Potter verse, uh, that other people in my life are well tuned into, uh, my partner being one of them. I think I'm happy to see the returning members of the cast. That's a big win for me. Um, I did. I, I haven't seen the second, so I couldn't tell you how Jude Law's portrayal of young Dumbledore is. But if either of you have a take on that, I'd love to hear it because that will either turn me into or turn me off from the project. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I adored the first one. I loved seeing the new setting. I just, it, I was never, I guess it, nothing really hooked me. Be, n- nothing hooked me that was new enough for the series. Like, I think I was just too rooted in my ways of Hogwarts for me to, you know, become invested into this new world. Um, and that's, that's, that's a shameful statement too, because, you know, I, I do love Harry Potter and I wish I did spend more time with it. Uh, it's just hard to, you know, to take the time to do that when I'm interested in. Uh, Sam, over to you. Uh, thoughts on uh, Fantastic Beasts 3. So uh, I'm like Noah, really, really glad to see that we have the same cast coming back. Uh, for me, I actually did end up seeing Fantastic Beasts 1 and 2. And so I was actually part of that party that hated too. I I really liked the first movie. I thought it was really, really well done. And it brought this other view of the Wizarding World that we haven't seen yet. And especially because it came from the the, you know, the small short book that we got the fantastic beasts and where to find them. And so I just think that that's really cool. Um, having said that the second one, it's like, it, it, for me, it felt like it threw away all the character development from the first movie. And I had no idea, especially with, um, I, please remind me guys, the sister's name. Um, she completely oh, uh, did a 180. Queenie. Yeah. Queenie. Thank you. I was going to say sissy and I'm like, that ain't it. <laughs> so with Queenie's character, it w- she did a complete 180 um, on her character development in the second one. And to me, it just felt so out of character for what we know about her, in my opinion. And so, uh, you know, she wasn't the only one. She just happened to be the most dramatic turn um, out of all the characters, in my opinion. So the second one, I was just like, oh, God, I don't know where this is going to go after this. And um, so I'm very skeptical about how this third one's going to be. And especially because like we touched on um, all the drama that happened with um, Johnny Depp in the past. And I feel very bad for him. I just, I I feel like that's not good press either way for the, for the movie. And it's just been kind of confusing since the role of Grindelwald has been swapped around a couple of times. So I think that could just confuse the general audience, but either way, you know, I'm, you know, I'm excited to see what it'll bring. I'm still going to be trash and watch the movie and pay for it and support it anyways. But the thing is, is like, you know, I, I'm going to be skeptical going into it. Um, but we, we shall see. How about you, Brandon? Yeah, I've, I've had conflicted feelings about this from the start. Like I, I I'm like you, I really like the first fantastic beast movie do not really care for the second one for you know a variety of reasons. And that has only been amplified by all of the J.K. Rowling controversy, all of the Johnny Depp controversy, all of the Ezra Miller controversy, and all of the, you know, the, the fan response, which has essentially been, why are we still supporting this? And also, why are we supporting a Harry Potter movie that's going to be on the cusp of World War II? There's some anti-Semitic language in the Harry Potter and the Harry Potter adaptations that I don't know if I want to see David Yates and J.K. Rowling tackle that just for myself personally. Um, and I know I'm not alone in that. I do like the kind of neat trick they're pulling with this franchise of like, oh, the, the kind of Dr. Parnassus thing of like, oh, just Grindelwald just doesn't have a face. He's just anyone. Like, I think that's kind of neat. Uh, I like the character of Newt Scamander. I want to see where that whole, like, you know, foursome of characters go. And 
for me, this should be the ending. Like the whole five, six film arc idea that they had was way too ambitious, was done way too soon. I totally agree with a lot of people on that. And I, I would honestly just say just after the third film, just put it to bed for a while. We are going to move on from there to our final story of the day, uh, Finch. Uh, this is a movie that's been in development for a long time. Uh, Tom Hanks kind of echoes of Bioshock post-apocalyptic story kind of thing. And we just got our first trailer for it for uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Finch revolves around an ailing inventor and the last man on Earth, who is played by Hanks, who creates an android to keep him and his dog company as they travel across a post-apocalyptic America. Uh, the titular android will be played by uh, Caleb Landry Jones, who you might know from things like uh, Get Out and Three Bull three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, other cast members include Riverdale's Skeet Ulrich, Black Klansman's Laura Harrier, and Orange is the New Black, uh, Samira Wiley. Uh, originally, this was set for release by Universal last year, but of course, you know, something happened last year. We don't know. And things got pushed back, and it got sold over to Apple TV. It is set to now premiere on Apple TV exclusively on November 5th. Uh, Sam, I want to get your thoughts on this trailer immediately. I've been very curious about this, and I I will get my thoughts across conventions, but I, I want to know what you think about this as both a push for Apple TV and another vehicle for Tom Hanks. Well, my immediate thought when I saw this was, save the dog. Yes. <laughs> I am concerned about the dog. Every time you see this guy attached to a dog, I was getting heavy I Am Legend vibes because he was so attached to his dog. But anyways, um, that's not the question that you asked. That's not the right answer. But um, I, I think that this is really interesting. I, I like the work that Tom Hanks has put out with Apple TV. Like I did really enjoy, um, I believe it was called Greyhound, that that nautical um movie and like i think it was world war ii um so anyways it was just it was really good and i like tom hanks a lot of people do so with finch i think it's really interesting because i really wouldn't immediately associate hanks with like sci-fi apocalyptic movies like this so i think this is something new for me to to like watch tom hanks in this kind of role and so i i'm excited and i think the cast is really cool the effects look fun and so um you know that's just something i'm looking forward to and that's a very much grazing the surface but i'd like to hear from the two of you first I love uh, cataclysmic natural events just destroying the world. Um, When I returned to the trailer, uh, I'd seen it earlier this week and I uh, only glanced at it. And then knowing we were going to talk about it, I returned to it and the stuff yeah, the sci-fi element surprised me because uh, with Tom Hanks, I was assuming this was a story about, um, you know, like the, the real life struggle of astronaut Tom Hanks, like returning to earth and it like, you know, something very true to life and very um, emotionally uh, relatable, like in that way. Uh, but let's talk about, uh, yes, this, this I'm legend relationship, this, um, Oh, I forget the name of the movie that just released. Uh, and it had, um, the movie with Han Solo and his dog and they were running like in the winter time. What movie was Call that? Call of the Wild. Yeah, Call of the Wild. Um, so this just makes me go, okay, the dog's gone. Like, <laughs> like don't get attached to the dog because we know eventually that dog's going to go. Um, but then but then it introduces us to this like assembly of a companion uh, with the robot, with a la Chappie. Like we're getting somebody who's going to help uh, reinforce this trailer that Tom Hanks uh, and his dog are, you know, traveling uh, we don't know where, you know, we don't know what really is going on with this world. Um, but we know that he is building this robot to help uh, keep him safe or to help guide him in some way. Um, and I'm, I'm all here for that. I love these, uh, these, yeah, these sci-fi stories of uh, can we teach this robot to care? Uh, will we eventually care for the robot? I like the story so far. I like what they've shown us um, as far as, yes, the natural world um, with all those twisters outside. Uh, I just can't wait to see what those big, 
those big action scenes are. And Tom Hanks is just a pleasure to listen to, pleasure to watch. Uh, no debate there, I don't think, between us three. Yeah, and this is uh, directed by Miguel uh, Stepaknik. I apologize if I mispronounce it. Primarily known on the uh, last two seasons of Game of Thrones, so he has a lot of action experience behind him on that. I like this trailer a lot. Uh, I remember first hearing about it and thinking, oh, this concept is going to make me cry. Like, I thought it was just going to be a robot and a dog, and I thought it was just going to be that kind of build. I When I heard first, I didn't think Tom Hanks' character was going to be alive for that long, but according to this, he is very much a prevalent role. It gave me big echoes of, uh, did either of you see The Midnight Sky with uh, George Clooney last year? Yes. And I really liked that movie. I wish it got more recognition. Anyways, yes. <laughs> it reminded me a lot about that kind of a young naivete character with Caleb Andrew Jones, who I love, by the way. Like, I love that he's getting more opportunities. I think he's a very talented actor. Uh, the motion capture looks really good. The story looks really interesting. And uh, I, I'm down to see this when it comes out. So we're going to transition now to a segment we actually have not uh, put attention to in the past, but what we want to have is a quick hit section that provides the opportunity for any of our hosts, myself included, to talk about any last minute news or any kind of surprising news that they covered in the week that we all just couldn't get to cover together. We're all going to have one minute each to go ahead and run through what we have to share with each other. Um, do I have any volunteers to go first, Brandon or Sam? I'll go first. Brandon, okay, we're going to give you one minute. Go ahead and tell us about any quick hit news that you want to share with our listeners. And uh, you'll be watching the clock, so make sure you don't burn out of time. No promises. In three, two. Okay, so recently it was confirmed, obviously, that we were getting a Batgirl movie on HBO Max. Uh, just earlier this week, we also got a confirmation of a composer. Uh, scoring Leslie Grace's Batwoman is going to be, drum roll, because we're talking about music. Natalie Holtz. Uh, who, of course, has done uh, some auxiliary work on the Paddington films. But more prominently, she's also uh, scored Loki, uh, the first season of Loki, which has quickly become one of my most played Spotify uh, albums, basically, of the year. I absolutely love her work on that, her use of theremins and strings. I'm a score junkie, for those of you who don't know. like I go nuts over this stuff. Uh, anyway, this was just something that I thought was incredibly cool to see, and I am very excited about. Uh, I've got 20 seconds left, so I will, guess, I will basically just bring up uh, the passing trailer, which I think is really cool. This is uh, Rebecca Hall's debut uh, feature film. It stars herself, uh, Ruth Naga, Alex Skarsgård, and um, uh, the guy, Andre Holland. Uh, and it's about uh, two women in, I believe, 1940s New York who are mixed race who are passing as white. I think it looks absolutely fascinating. Uh, I cannot wait to see what Rebecca Hall can do as director and stuff. <laughs> Okay, great job. Oh my gosh, I felt winded by all of that speed. Thank you for delivering it to us amazingly. Um, oh, there's my own timer. Sorry, I started after you. Uh, Sam, you gonna rock, paper, scissors me? Or are you going next? No, I'll go ahead and go next. Okay, so. All right, so, one minute, three, you press play and you're ready. All right, three, two, one. So the thing I wanted to talk about actually happened right before we started recording and we got a new teaser for Stranger Things 4. Whoop, whoop. So uh -huh. I am a fan. I've seen all three seasons. Super excited. Um, I was very confused. At first, I thought they were promoting a different show and then, because it takes us back into the past. We see this really cool car come up, this family moving into a creepy mansion, which is the start of every horror movie. Mayflower on the moving truck. Am I overthinking that? I have no idea, but interesting. And then we slowly start to see that it looks a little creepy. We start to see the upside down in this haunted house and then that family's gone now we see our usual friends that we have grown to know and love where the heck is mike and will i'm very concerned and then we also see all the others in there though and um i don't know i'm just very excited they quote sherlock holmes in there we'll see if that has any meaning later but um it's a creepy clock it looks a little creepy and no sign of Russia just yet in this one. The movie, um, the, not the movie, but the, the chatter does say 003 slash 004. So I think we will see another teaser in the future, but otherwise super pumped. Excited to see it. Let's go. 
Oh my gosh, Sam. That was like, you took up. Oh, meanwhile, my alarm can't stop ringing. Great job. Great job. Okay. Oh, my turn. Um, Yes, absolutely cannot wait to catch up with Stranger Things. I need to watch season three and then dive into season four. My minute is going to start right. Let me take a breath. Right now. So what I want to talk about first is PlayStation Production uh, Studios uh, from Sony Interactive Entertainment. We know PlayStation produces games and we know that they're like AAA titles and they're amazing. We know the Uncharted film is coming. But let's talk about all of the the different projects that are going to be coming out of PlayStation Productions. We have um, the Uncharted live action movie that's going to be coming to. Oh, just kidding. That's starring Tom Holland, Mark Wahlberg. And I'm not sure where that is coming to. But I will say that The Last of Us starring uh, Pedro Pascal is going to be coming to HBO Max that does have the original writer and director Neil Druckmann attached, and that is amazing to see. I cannot wait for that. But part of news is Anthony Mackie was attached to the new project called Twisted Metal. I have actually never played the Twisted Metal video games. I have played the other two, The Last of Us and Uncharted. Cannot wait for those uh, projects. But Anthony Mackie, we know and love from uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, so I'm very happy to see that he's attached to PlayStation's next project. And the last thing I'm going to say is Injustice released a Red Band trailer, and Superman punches Joker's heart right out, and I cannot wait to watch that <laughs> that movie because now it's on DVD. <laughs> and that Uh, that wraps our minute quick hits uh thank you all for doing that so well um we're we're hoping to return that to you each week uh just making sure that if there's a piece of news we did not get to cover uh in our longer segment that we still um are touching upon those areas and uh corners that we all like um how do you all feel energized (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel very so. awake <laughs> i hope so uh we're actually going to transition now uh, outside of our new segment we are talking uh still new pieces but these are new movies uh we do have some reviews coming at you in this next segment we're going to be talking dear evan hansen we're going to be talking the starling uh some of these are streaming some of these are uh, theatrical releases uh we'll first we'll talk about dear evan hansen that is the you know original broadway musical transitioned over to film but kept but keeping their star ben platt uh we have Brandon writing a review for Odyssey. Uh, the conversation is primarily going to be between Sam and Brandon. Uh, I did not get around to watching that. Uh, but without further ado, uh, do I have a Dear Evan Hansen? I don't have a, a, a quip, a joke. Go, Brandon. Yeah, as much as we hate to leave you with Superman punching the Joker's heart, we do have to talk about something else. Um, no, yeah. we'll be waving through a window in the meantime. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen, uh, this is uh, directed by Stephen Chbosky, who, of course, did uh, Wonder and Perks of Being a Wallflower. He also wrote that film. I believe he also co-wrote the live-action Beauty of the Beasts as well. I will fact-check on that later. Uh, this is, of course, based on the hit Broadway play of the same name from uh, Steve Levinson, who comes back to write the script, as well as Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, who come back to do the music on this. It stars Ben Platt. He is a high school senior who is essentially going through a lot of stuff. He has a single mom, played by Julian Moore, who is picking up more and more ships to try and pay for his college, but primarily he's suffering from a lot of mental illness. He suffers from severe anxiety and depression. One uh, experiment that he sort of has from his psychiatrist is to write letters to himself and to kind of, you know, uh, re-inspire himself every day. One day, one of those letters is found by a kid named Connor, uh, who is played by Colton Ryan, who actually understudied as the character in the original uh, stage production. Uh, Connor is also suffering from mental instability as well. He sees his sister's name Zoe in the letter, who, uh, uh, who Evan has a crush on. He kind of runs off and Evan panics. A couple days later, uh, Evan is called into the principal's office and he essentially learns that Connor has committed suicide. Uh, he meets Connor's parents, uh, his mother, played by Amy Adams, and his father, played by uh, Law & Order SVU's uh, Danny Pino. They invite him over. He meets Connor's sister, Zoe, I should say, played by Caitlin Deaver. 
And essentially, in kind of a mix of panic and a mix of empathy to the family, crafts this sort of web about he and Connor's friendship, because the last thing that Connor had on his person when he died was Evan's letter to himself. He also signed Evan's recently uh, broken wrist cast. So they kind of uh, they kind of gather from that that he and Connor must be good friends. They were not. And so Evan kind of crafts this you know story to kind of make them feel better. As a result, he also comes into contact with a student activist uh, named Alana, played by uh, Amanda Stenberg. She's setting up a memorial for Connor, as well as a foundation to benefit other uh, high school students who also have mental disabilities. And it's kind of basically runs the gamut of how long can Evan take this? You know, where does his own condition fall into play about this? And how can he potentially help others with it as a result? Uh, as Noah already mentioned, I'm running a review for Odyssey about this. I got to see it early. So I didn't like this movie. I like Steven Jabosky a lot. I loved Forks of Being a Wallflower. I thought Wonder was maybe one of the most underrated movies of the last decade. This I found really manipulative, really just kind of icky at points. And a lot of it has to do with the premise. And I, I will say that I think the first 10 minutes in establishing who Evan is as a character, and I think the last maybe five or seven minutes that try to sort of, you know, rectify and kind of, you know, close up the whole thing, I do actually think have some weight. I think there's... I think there's some weight to Evan as a character and Ben Platt, who, you know, again, the internet has been having a field day, you know, criticizing his casting. And I have, you know, been one to a degree. I think Ben Platt is selling a lot of the musical performances. Uh, I do have issues with the songs as well, but I think during the musical performances themselves, he is bringing 110% of himself to this role. If no one else believes him, he does. And I will at least give him props for that. Uh, and I think Amy Adams in particular, I think gets some really good scenes to kind of, you know, remind us that, oh yeah, she hasn't won an Oscar. Why? Um, and I think, the way that there are, I, I was talking about this the other day, there are certain moments of the film that I do think have some nuance to them. Like the moment where um, where Evan is talking with Alana outside and they're you know exchanging kind of, you know, oh, what condition do you have? Like, I felt that was very real and I felt very true to, you know, they would have these spaces where they could be. And I felt like those were rarities in a film that so often felt either manipulative or just based in commonplace cliches. I think that goes to a lot of the songs as well, which suddenly it makes all the sense in the world why these guys were hired for Greatest Showman, because that, as much as I love those songs, they're all platitudes and all self-esteem anthems, and I can only stand so much of them. And I think on, on the whole, I don't think the film knows what to do with its themes. I think it thinks that it's being, you know, inclusive and welcoming and warm. And I felt more and more that Evan Hansen as a character was not just unable to get into him as a character, but I felt really, again, just gross about that kind of representation for people who are clearly trying to ask for help and are clearly asking for the resources and are just not able to get the very complex and very help they need and are just kind of enabled to go throughout that. And I really did not think it worked well at all. Again, I do think there are positive elements to this. It just gave me this overwhelming sense throughout most of the movie of like, this is not specific enough. It's not endearing enough. And I couldn't get into it. So, Sam, I know you were much more positive than I was. Uh, what did you think about your own hat? Yeah, honestly, uh, it just as a, a note, too, I had not seen Dear Evan Hansen on stage either. Did you ever see it yet? No, neither did I. Okay, because that's something that I think is interesting for perspective, because I saw all the really bad reviews on it before I went to go see the movie. So I went in with like the lowest possible expectations. So I think that might be why I liked it more, because I had zero expectations. And it was like, oh, okay, this surprised me. So I I really liked the music a lot, which to Brandon's point, like it makes sense that they got people from Greatest Showman on here. And uh, it's just very clear. Same with La La Land, I think, too, right? Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but... 
Yeah. And so it just makes sense with those enthusiastic anthems, like you said, and, and they're like uplifting, if you will. But and to be honest, it's very easy to fall under that spell. And so that's why there were times that it, I did fall into that where it was like, oh, you know what? There are quite a few scenes in here where this is this is really great. You're reminded of these actors' talents. Like with Caitlin Deaver, I'll support anything that she's in. She's phenomenal in like Booksmart. She's phenomenal in Men, Women, and Children. Like just anything she does, I'm a, a huge fan of. And so I, she does a really great role. And I think she is the actress that came in with the most appropriate emotions, if that makes sense. Because there are times when this movie is very melodramatic. And so very. I think that she, exactly. I saw, Brandon's eyes went very wide when I said that keyword. A lot of it's very melodramatic. And I feel like she is the one that brings the right amount of drama to a role or emotion and, and without being over, you know, without overdoing it. And so, you know, again, also everybody else is really good in Amy Adams. And I think, I think what turned a lot of people off from this movie is the fact that it really discounted the parents' efforts. Whereas in the play, it sounds like they really did, especially because some of the songs were cherry picked. Some songs were taken out of the album, basically not included in the movie at all. So for what that's worth, a lot of those songs gave more insight into the parents because Julianne Moore, who plays Evan Hansen's mom, she's not really there. And in the musical, it actually shows that she's there quite often. And so it's just interesting to see that um, just from that, again, outsider's perspective, but the music is really good. In my opinion, I'm, I'm a fan of it. I actually have more of a tolerance for uplifting songs than I think our friend Brandon here, the cynicist. Is. <laughs> oh, <laughs> boom. <laughs> but no, it's just, um, you know, I think it's good. I had faith in Stephen Frosty and I liked it more than I think your average. Um, and, and I think, you know, when the story, it's a very, it's a very terrible story. It's basically somebody profiting off of someone's suicide. That's, that's not cool. Um, that's something that nobody would recommend doing. And it's not like he means to do it. He just kind of gets caught up in the grief that everyone's feeling over Connor's death. Um, but that doesn't mean it's right. And so I could find it you know, hard to follow him. But I think that could go back to the original writers. Like you could criticize the original writers for something like that. Again, yeah, there were times that this movie, it was really good in specific scenes. Things felt very genuine, like Amanda Stenberg scene that you mentioned when they were out on the swing set. But then otherwise, there were a lot of times where it just felt overdone. So... And from the whispers of the back of the recording studio, um, I do plan on still watching this. You know, I respect both of your positions on it, uh, of course. Initially, when I was introduced to the storyline, a friend has, had been telling me about it. And I was flabbergasted about the story. So, sh so shocked by like what the premise had been. Um, and then I listened to it and I got really like more so touched by the story. Like it actually like it felt like it made more sense. Brandon, what you were saying, it also reminded me, I, I completely agree that you should ask the friend I went to go see Dear Evan Hansen with throughout most of the movie. I was hunched over to my side like this because the secondhand embarrassment is so real in the movie that you're thinking every time Evan does something, you're like, why, why did you do that? Why, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And yeah, it, it's like, you know, Ben Platt's performance that I think, you know, it's worth noting because that secondhand embarrassment from my end was so strong. Like you could feel his anxiety. You could feel just like everything going through his head. And then it's just like, you know, like I feel that. And um, that was something that I agree with where throughout the movie, you're asking yourself, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And for me, it was just strong secondhand embarrassment. Absolutely. It is. But even more than that, like, I, I'm sorry, I, I have to go out, but 
again, the movie is so bright and optimistic and so like, I hate to say like Christian Rocky, but I kept getting that, you know, tone of like, you know, a youth pastor, like telling you it's all going to be okay and everything like that. And I just got so much of that from that. And when you go back to that thing of like, he's making all the wrong decisions and he doesn't know what he's doing. It conflates that idea of like, no, like he is clearly asking for help and he is clearly asking for assistance on this, but it's like, no, it's fine. Cause we'll sing a big song. I wish you didn't say that because now that's all I'm seeing and thinking about in my head is a Christian (laughs) like oh no like a pastor just saying oh we'll be fine let's sing this song you're not alone you'll be found it's like yeah I I can see what you're saying so I I wish you didn't say that because now that's all I'm gonna think about (laughs) go ahead sorry like going back to the point of Pace and Paul it was like that thing of we're greatest showmen like I thought oh this is a little bit you know overwhelming a little bit and then I watched this and I was like yup it makes sense (laughs) I think I would just go with like a six, I'd say that was for me. And so uh, how about yours, Brandon? I feel like yours is going to be much lower. <laughs> it was lower. I'm, I'm bumping it to a three. I think there are solid performance moments in there. I think some of this, I can see the songs appealing. I mean, literally the past six years is evidence enough of the songs appealing. They're you know huge Broadway hits now. But considering that 80% of the movie to me felt like this weird squeamish thing in my seat of just no what are you doing like the fact that so much of it felt that way to me I, I could not get over it and I know that some people in my theater were you know laughing and cheering and you know I could hear some people humming on songs I'm like, great like if this gives you hope in that and this gives you complexity in that find that in whatever art you can I have just seen movies for that better and I really just think this missed the mark Thank you both for those hot, spicy takes on Dear Evan Hansen. We'll go ahead and transition on to our next uh, topic of film. And it's actually streaming on Netflix. Brandon, what can you tell us about The Starling? Yeah, so The Starling is uh, Ted Nelpy's new project. He did uh, Hidden Figures a few years ago with uh, Octavia Spencer, Taraji B. Henson, and uh, Joe Monet. Big fan of that project. Uh, we've been waiting for another project from him for a while now. Uh, this is on Netflix. It stars Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd as a estranged couple. Uh, they've suffered a family tragedy in the last, I believe it's about a year. They're never really super clear with the timeline, but they've suffered a recent tragedy in the family. They are going about it in different ways. Uh, Lily, who is played by Melissa McCarthy, she kind of like recludes herself into her work as a grocery store clerk. She is under the management of uh, Timothy Alphonse, who plays the manager. Jack, on the other hand, who is played by Chris O'Dowd, is at a uh, is at a mental health facility. He is suffering from depression. He's sort of, you know, going about his days with like with a psychotherapist. Uh, he is under the tutelage of an art teacher played by Debbie Diggs. Uh, the supporting cast in this is actually really, really huge. Anyways, Lily one day is, you know, gardening in her garden and she stumbles across this uh, this bird who turns out to be a starling who is basically just attacking her. And it's basically just this whole thing of like, it's a very territorial bird. It's she meets a psychotherapist turned veterinarian played by uh, Kevin Klein, who agrees to kind of help her out and maybe also work through this very clear trauma that she is uh, dealing with with her and her husband. You know, obviously her and her husband coming back to uh, reconcile with one another after this tragedy. Um I wanted to like this. I remember liking the trailer quite a bit. It looked like it looked like Melissa McCarthy was going to be keeping on that train from, you know, St. Vincent, which Ted Melfi also directed, as well as uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which I think shows her to have a lot of promise as a dramatic as a dramatic actress. I really want to see her do more of this and look like that kind of thing. Uh, it's not. It's actually much more of kind of a uh, it's much more of kind of a light hearted comedy that occasionally tries to be a serious family drama. Uh, and I will admit Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd do actually have very good chemistry together. I like them as a married couple. It's actually the scenes without dialogue, really. Like, there's a couple, like, silent flashback sequences where I kind of felt like, oh, the, the chemistry is genuinely real. Uh, Kevin Klein is doing a lot with his uh, with his role here. He's kind of like, uh, he's got a lot of snarky comebacks. He's got a lot of, you know, kind of like animal puns here and there. And 
you know, he's kind of enjoyment to watch. At the end of the day, though, a lot of the supporting cast is wasted. Like, I don't know what they told Timothy Oliphant to doing, but he is just like eyes bulged, like crazy manager. I've never seen him like this, and I do not like him like this at all. David Diggs is completely wasted. Rosalind Chow is completely wasted. So much supporting cast is completely wasted. And there's also the writing behind it, which I don't think really works in terms of I don't think it really works in terms of either. The comedy isn't that funny. Like a lot of the comedy comes from this sort of prank war, basically between Melissa McCarthy and the Starling. Basically, like like super strong. Like it it will knock you in and just knock you out like immediately. It's that somehow powerful. It's also very badly CG animated. It's not a practical bird. It's a CG Starling, and it's very odd. But on, on top of that, I don't think the dramatic weight works because at the end of the day, it just kind of exists. The drama is fine. The comedy is fine. They don't really blend together all that well. The performances are solid, but I, they're from ta- they're performers who I think should have much more material to work with. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's not quite what I really wanted from uh, from Ted Melby. Thank you for tuning into all of our new release reviews. Uh, Brandon and Sam, thank you both for your input on what released this week and what you got a chance to see. Uh, now we're going to transition over to Stream Wars, all TV updates, whatever we're calling this segment. And that is the name of this segment. We're going to be talking What If, we're going to be talking Midnight Mass, Star Wars Visions, any of our Star Wars fans listening, uh, Only Murders in the Building updates. I cannot wait to start talking about this. Uh, so what we're going to start with is Marvel's What If. We have Season 1, Episode 7. That is What If Thor were were an only child uh starting this off um i don't mind taking the mantle i'll go ahead and tell y'all my quick reactions then we can start a topic or we can start a conversation around how we all felt um this this episode really moves through the asgardian uh being raised as an only child without his um adopted brother loki uh being raised alongside him so it really gives thor nothing to nothing to really I guess, counter in terms of why he becomes so, um, so favored by his parents is because of all of the mischief that Loki, of course, gets into, uh, while they're being raised. So instead, Thor is more so this like bachelor kind of party animal as he becomes an adult. And, uh, the entire episode really focuses on Thor as an adult. Um, he's not, this isn't like the young years of Thor. Um, and the episode covers his, his, escape from Asgard or his, I guess, um, respite from Asgard because he wants to come and party on Earth. Um, and partying on these planets leads to their destruction is the vibe that I got from the episode. Yes? Okay. Basically. Yeah, so um, I'm just going to jump right to the things that I liked about this episode. I will say um, that this one, this episode... The positives for me were finally getting a lot of Asgardian characters back into the mix. Um, we hadn't spent a lot of time with like Lady Sif. Um, forgive me for not remembering Thor's mother's name. Uh, and then we even do get an appearance from Loki. Her name? Frigga. Yes. So uh, it was a pleasure to see all those characters, familiar faces we have. Um, Kat Dennings back. It, it had a hard time grabbing me, I think, from the beginning because I wanted to understand what the episode wanted to accomplish by the end of it. Um, I knew that Captain Marvel was going to show up just based off of some of the pictures, uh, but it had me thinking like, okay, this, this episode's kind of taking a while for me to understand, like, where are we going with this? Is Thor just pretty much a party animal and we're supposed to follow him as he makes reckless decisions. But once he started fighting Captain Marvel, I was more tuned in and I kind of, I really did enjoy watching that whole battle ensue, but my downs were I mean, it's hard for me to say that they're downs because I do appreciate we getting as guardians to show up, but the down was for like, I didn't really feel as invested in this story. So how do you two feel? 
Yeah, I'll actually start with my big negative, which is that, you know, we kind of uh, deemed earlier, the stakes aren't that well-defined. Like we get kind of like, you know, shield computer monitors and like statistics and everything like that. But we never actually like really shown the sheer destruction that Thor's partying can cause. But yeah, aside from that, I I found this to be a really cool kind of pastiche of, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or like, you know, Project X or like any big, you know, oh, like high schoolers are doing juvenile things and they have to get away with it from their parents. Like I found that kind of structure weirdly endearing for Thor, especially this era of Thor. Um, Chris Hemsworth is doing, again, wonderful. Every time I think that Chris Hemsworth has done everything there is to do with Thor as a character, he flips it on his head and I think it goes to how much of the talent he is. Um, and I love the kind of, you know, arrogance that he brings back to it. It's a different layer from that first Thor movie, but again, all the more, you know, enjoyable and charismatic and aha, another like, you know, all those things that, you know, we kind of gravitated towards in the first Thor movie. Um, and I like him and uh, and Jane in this. Like, I didn't like them early on in the films, but I actually find them much more endearing here. Um, and the Captain Marvel fight is amazing. Like, they're they're both great, but specifically the one in the second act is amazing. I, I've always wanted to see that in action and to be able to see that animation is really cool. Obviously, the ending teaser, we can get into that if we want, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but you know what? I I found this really fun, really exciting, kind of the very natural, uh, the natural engagement that Earthlings seem to have with Guardians. Like, I like that kind of mutual respect there. And it goes to show kind of how much of a jerk Odin was, which we've all been saying for years. So I like this a lot. Yeah, I think for me, it's just, this episode was just pure fun. And I feel like that was hopefully the point because it's not like we got any kind of big resounding message like the doctor strange episode for example it this one was just more about pure fun and let's be real chris hemsworth brings that like uh that emote that emote of like a frat boy you know like he does look like that guy in college and so it's kind of funny to see chris hemsworth embody that in this in in what if and it's really fun and i agree with you that i grew more attached to him and jane together in this one way more than the movie i i don't know why to me it was just like okay cute couple but uh, otherwise i wasn't really as invested as that but this one there was something about you know this quick pacing that what if has given us that made this more endearing because of how quickly they seem to have fallen in love with each other so i think that was really fun to see um, and I also thought it was fun to see that dynamic of, um, you know, seeing what does end up happening to Loki instead, because that's kind of teased at the beginning of the episode, and I won't go too much into it. But that was kind of funny to see that other side of Loki as well. And so, um, and how he interacts with Thor in this different scenario. So um, that was actually my favorite part of the episode as well. And that fight scene, yeah, absolutely with um, with Captain Marvel, that was really funny. I thought that there were a lot of really cool inside quips there too. I forgot who in the episode said it, but they told Captain Marvel, like, I thought you were a guy, I thought you were a dude. And that made me laugh out loud. Uh, so um there are just a lot of really cool inside jokes in there and um i thought yeah it was just pure fun i liked the episode it was pretty fun your cat can eat entire planets yeah <laughs> exactly oh goodness and i did appreciate seeing uh loki as a giant i thought that that was great them two about to like spar on earth and then turns out they're just buddies like they're just people who party together and i like seeing loki all blue and just huge it looked great it reminds you of like yeah loki is a frost giant like if it wasn't for you know all the enchantments and everything like that is his real form so to speak uh if we want to uh if we want to move on to rankings then uh where do we place this uh i i can actually start off with this i actually if i may you know take myself off from last week when i was like oh you know all the all the odd number episodes are not that great 
uh, well, not this one. I would put this again, like right around, right around in the middle. Actually, like I had so much fun with this. I think I will go from bottom to top. I will go one. You know what? I'm not going to do that because you made the social security joke last week. So I'm going to start, you know, naming actual titles. I'm going to go Captain Carter, the murder mystery one, zombies, Thor, uh, Thor only child right here, uh, Killmonger, Stark, and then uh, Doctor Strange, T'Challa, Star Lord. So for me, from did you do it from bottom or from top? I did from bottom. Okay. So my rankings then from bottom to top are Guardians, T'Challa, Zombies, Captain Carter, Everyone Dies, Thor, Killmonger Stark, and then uh, Doctor Strange. Every time you put two on your bottom, my heart breaks a little. Noah. It's on purpose. No, just kidding. No, it's Gosh, not. You're so good at this. When there's Now we're ranking seven episodes, and that just seems so impossible for me. Okay, I'm going to knock out the easy ones. What's at top? In no particular order. <laughs> okay, yes, I'm forced into a box. I have to make an order. You know what? For this week, number one, I think I put zombies up there last week. After careful consideration, Doctor Strange is going to go up in my in my uh, list. I want Doctor Strange at the very, very top. Uh, so that puts episode four, Doctor Strange losing his heart um, as number one. Uh, taking spot number two is What If Zombies? That is a sh- an episode that I could see expanded into so many things. Um, following that would be, oh, I'm going to say just quick, throw them out there. Strange, Doctor Strange, Zombies. We're going to go, we're going to go T'Challa, Star-Lord. We're going to go, after this, it's going to be Thor, Party Thor. After that, it's going to go Killmonger, Peggy, and Earth losing its mightiest heroes. That's, okay. I think I could, I think that Bravo. that's, yeah. All right. So that will be our what if talk for this week. Again, you know, big excitement for next week. We will get to you guys when, of course, we get to it. Uh, this time, Noah is running solo with this. Uh, Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass dropped on Netflix. Noah is going to tell us about it. Hey, everyone. I watched the first two episodes of Midnight Mass. That's Mike Flanagan's latest series streaming on Netflix. It's sort of horror. It's sort of supernatural. Uh, It's definitely the show that isn't showing all of its cards from the get-go. I'm still wrapping my head around all the moving pieces that Flanagan includes in this new limited series. Uh, For any listening fans of horror, we have seen excellent work from Flanagan in the past. He's done Oculus, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, Doctor Sleep, and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Uh, Typically, he takes on credits of both writer and director. Uh, We've even seen him take on editor as well in the same instance. So he's, uh, I know for a fact, he's written, directed, and edited, uh, you know, episodes of Hill House, episodes of Blind Manor, and for sure, Dr. Sleep. Uh, Let's go ahead and talk about the series. So the series is a limited series. It's seven episodes, and each each hits the hour mark. So you are... uh, investing your time into this series uh, with it being only seven episodes. That is uh, kind of nice, uh, especially when those uh, episodes do take, you know, a full hour to move through. Now, the first few episodes don't define much for what the town has got itself into. Um, the first time I recorded this review, I covered the first two episodes, but uh, I became a little long winded. So I watched the third and knew immediately that I had to provide an update. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the IMDb synopsis for you. Uh, It's an isolated island community experiences miraculous events and frightening omens after the arrival of a charismatic, mysterious young priest. So 
Definitely eerie. Um, the first episodes have us follow Riley. Uh, Riley is played by Zach Guilford, who appeared in The Purge Anarchy, if you've ever seen it. Uh, I actually do like his role in that movie. I thought that that was well done. And then um, he is followed in the first few episodes. He's returning to an he was returning to his isolated hometown, population well under 100, and everybody knows each other. So it's a very tight community and it's isolated like an island. So you have to take a ferry from the mainland to actually get to this community. Uh, there's most people in town attend a Catholic church and, uh, you know, the, the mood in the town is very gray, uh, but for the most part, it's pretty dandy. Like everybody in town seems to get along and know their role in the community. Um, except for this new priest. So enter a new priest, and he is played by uh, Hamish Linklater. Uh, his name is Father Paul in the series, and he's really the one who is new in town and shakes up how this community, um, shakes up their relationship with the church, shakes up um, you know, the popularity of the, of the city, and uh, he's really the, the spark for all that change. So with the church center stage in this show, a lot of the conversations that are had are about faith, about miracles, the impact of God, um, and everyone's relationship with God uh, to every one of these people. Uh, there is a sheriff and his young son who are Muslim, so they are actually, uh, they don't visit the church. Um, and that's explored too, uh, their positions of faith. After watching the first three episodes, I can say you're getting great efforts made by Flanagan in his writing and directing. Stylistically, I can recall continuous shots from Hill House that make their return here. Uh, there is a large cast of characters who all have different levels of, uh, they all have different relationships and involvement with the church. And whenever it feels like we're hopping uh, to and from so many characters, it's always balanced with a script that dives deep into our characters' attachment to their faith and their perspective on living and even existence. Um, there are some atheist characters in here as well. Riley is one of them. This doesn't, uh, here's where Flanagan really uses those long shots when it's between two people and they're, they're having a longer conversation, maybe exiting church or on their way to church. Um, these, are, these are just long shots that just follow our two characters. Okay, next thing I'm talking is horror. This doesn't, this isn't exactly Oculus or Hill House when it comes to getting the scares started from the beginning. Uh, this takes longer strides with its character and world building, and that's because the whole show the whole show has a layer pulled back by episode three. Uh, I wouldn't judge it too quick, uh, although I did. So that's why I'm returning to redeem myself uh, because it's a delicate unraveling that's taking place and it's well worth the pace that it has. Trust the series, it will deliver. Um, as far as performances are going, uh, production value, the writing, casting, I think those are all cranked to 11. I don't have any complaints over what I'm seeing visually. Um, for for what I had said earlier, it was just about uh, the pacing of the show. And I think the the unraveling was something that I was getting used to. Uh, but now that I'm now that I'm well aware of the pace that Flanagan has planned for this series, I cannot wait to finish it. I can't wait to provide an update when I finish the series here in the next week. Um, so more on the series. 
there, there is an eerie atmosphere to the town with everyone wondering what happened to the past Monsignor. Uh, the new priest replaces the, the older Monsignor that had been leading the community before or leading the church. Uh, that, along with dead cats being laid across the shore, drained of blood, you know, are you thinking there's a chupacabra somewhere? We don't know. Uh, it's all leading up to something. But I mean, I know, I, but I won't spoil it until I finish the series and provide a follow-up. Uh, this is Midnight Mass, again, from Mike Flanagan, uh, available on Netflix. It's a limited series, uh, definitely for all the horror fans out there. And it, although it's more of a slow burn, I think once you get to episode three, uh, if you're patient with it, you will be invested into what the story has to offer. Can't wait to hear your full thoughts on the series. Uh, that will probably be either next week or the week after. We'll get you guys on that. Uh, I will move on to the Wonder Years pilot. I'll get through this very quickly. Uh, there is a Wonder Years reboot. It is on ABC and Hulu. The first episode premiered the other night. Uh, this focuses on, uh, as contrasted the original, uh, which was focused on a white family, primar- uh, primarily focusing on Fred Savage's character. This is now focusing on a black family also in the 1960s. Uh, the lead is played by uh, E.J. Williams, young new actor uh, playing, who plays Dean. He is a piece of fan of baseball. He's just moving into a new school. Uh, the whole thing actually is a very everybody hates Chris vibe, not just because of Black Cast, but also because of the sense of humor. And to be fair, that show was also heavily inspired by the original Wonder Years as well. So there's kind of that vibe to it of like if you've seen a lot of a lot of you know mid to late '80s, early '90s, you know coming of age sitcoms, you've seen what this is going for. Uh, Dean is again like this kind of you know nerdy shy kid. He has a crush on one of his neighbors. He deals with boys at school, and he has this very kind of eclectic family. His older brother is off to uh, war in Vietnam at the moment. His sister is focusing on college applications and also is secretly a Black Panther. We're not totally sure. She has at least connections to that in the series, but she's kind of hiding that for now. Uh, His mom is more of a uh, stay-at-home mom of the figure, and his dad is sort of a uh, Funk Brothers-style session musician who has just recently gotten some uh, radio success. And the whole backdrop of the first episode is essentially that Dean... He is part of a all-black baseball team. One of his best friends is part of a uh, all-white team. And the main crux of the episode is essentially trying to get their coaches to agree to play one another for, you know, the sake of sportsmanship, while both of their, you know, parents and, you know, all the school groups are like, no, this is not a good idea with everything that's going on. All against, again, the backdrop of, you know, 1960 in America, which is a pebbly tense time for race relationships. What I like about this show, and I will just make this brief, is that it doesn't shy away. From, I think when I saw this initially, I kind of rolled my eyes as like, oh, it's, you know, it's a, it's an ABC sitcom. It's not going to tackle this, you know, point blank. But, you know, in the wake of shows, you know, in the last number of years that have been tackling some more sitcom environments, I was impressed that this was able to do this, particularly in the last few minutes. And I won't spoil what happens, but the last few minutes are, you know, heart-wrenching and endearing and very you know collective and you know it's emotion i think the young kid uh playing dean is really fun to watch he's a great kind of you know awkward scrawny kind of lead character um his friends are all really nice uh don Cheadle narrates the whole thing and it's actually really fun what he gets to do with all this uh and saladin uh, patterson i should say show runs this he's been known for things like uh, the last og and big bang theory and he's been all over the place in the last number of years uh and i guess i was just more surprised at anything that this was able to have such substance to it and was able to tackle things that were not just, you know, normal sitcom antics. Um, I don't know if that's how the whole show was going to pan out. Uh, they definitely set up some plot lines again with the sisters, you know, Black Panther connections with sort of, you know, the mom and dad's relationship with uh, with Dean's love interest who may or may not be in love with his best friend. So that may bring it home about a whole thing. Uh, but yeah, overall, I would definitely recommend this as just a pilot. Uh, it's a nice, clean half an hour. It's got some good substance to it. The jokes are funny. And again, it was more than I was expecting. 
Thank you, Brandon. Uh, we can actually go ahead and start on our new Disney Plus series that we are all watching. It is called Star Wars Visions. This is a nine episode um, kind of like one time. Well, we don't know if it's a one time thing, but it reminded me of like a love, death and robots for the Star Wars universe. We're getting nine different animation studios to take on different stories that are not uh, canon in our Star Wars, uh, you know, cinematic universe thus far and um we're seeing all of them take on like the gritty the gritty the gritty stories there there are some lighthearted stories thrown in um exploring uh different characters too not always just like a jedi or a sith um sometimes just the droids and i think that that was something i really appreciated from this series um it being nine episodes uh brandon and i were able to uh knock out the series sam watched the first uh three episodes so we are going to kind of uh, guide our discussion around those introductory episodes first. And then Brandon, if you and I have any lasting comments about the others uh, in the series, then we can give our thoughts. Um, but for now, why don't we talk about episode one? You know, the, the introductory episode, which I thought was one of its strongest, it is titled the duel and is actually entirely in black and white. Um, you know, let's start with opening thoughts from uh, Brandon. Let's talk about the duel. Uh, solid start. I remember watching it going, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, I will say that there is an episode later on that I think does what the duel is trying to do better, and we'll get to that. Um, but I like sort of the, you know, I like sort of the post-episode seven timeline. I like sort of the, again, like, as a, I'm a canon junkie. Like, I like when things tie together. I like knowing the full tapestry of Star Wars, and that's why I've loved it, you know, from, from a kid since the grown-up. And, you know, this was kind of, to me, being like, it doesn't necessarily matter. So I was kind of hesitant, but the second this started, I was like, I know what you're going for. It's, you know, really cool stylized animation. It's taking the imagery of Star Wars and again, putting it into Kurosawa and Westerns and, you know, ancient serials and, you know, all these projects that, you know, uh, that Lucas and Gary Kurtz and all the people who were inspired by Star Wars were taking after and kind of, you know, recontextualizing them within the Star Wars iconography. I like the character of Ronan. I like the sort of like, weird you know spinny umbrella lightsaber duels that we kind of get as a result of it um and i like how mandalorian vibey it kind of feels like just enough to feel like that where if you're a fan of that show you can find you know success with this um again it's not my favorite i think there's episodes later down the line that do it but it's a solid start yeah and i i agree with what brandon's saying too because it's like it's such a strong opening for visions and and the fact that you know so many different japanese studios came together to make these i think it's really cool because it's a great showcase for that those varying art styles and so with this first one it you know i, I know it's apples and oranges but it kind of reminds me of the same vibes as like ghost of tsushima from like video games and it's just kind of like that cool classic um shogun's not the right word but it's kind of similar to that that style of um animation and story so I, i'm just really uh, happy to see duel i thought it was a really strong start and i was a huge fan of the droid in there too and then what happens with like oh you got to fix him by the time this water boils like i was stressed for that poor guy but it's like you know i just thought the whole episode was nice and quick and that's one of my favorite um aspects of the the series so far is the fact that these are very easily consumable you could sit down and watch them easily within a couple hours which is nice and so um you know having said that i only got to watch the three like noah mentioned but like you know it's just it's something that's really quick simple easy and it tells a nice story in the middle there in between so dual yeah really liked it for a start and of course we know that we wanted to mention it on this podcast so um you know brandon and i did burn through those nine episodes but you know these can all they don't 
they don't benefit your experience by taking them all in at once. Like, you know, you can benefit just from watching one or two in a sitting because they are 14, you know, uh, 15 minute long. So longest, I think it's like 23 minutes. So uh, there's not necessarily anything to gain by watching them all, you know, back to back, but, but taking them each in as you have time for them, I think will help you appreciate them more uh, because I watched them all uh, yesterday. I know I will return to some episodes just because uh you know, maybe the story kind of went over my head and I was too invested by the animation or maybe, you know, vice versa. I was just paying attention to the story and judging it based off of that, but not really looking at uh, the direction of the artwork behind it. Uh, so next we're going to talk about um, is episode two, Tatooine Rhapsody. Uh, this actually uh, puts a smile on Brandon's face. So I'm going to go ahead and toss to you first, Brandon. Uh, what was your reaction from uh, Tatooine Rhapsody? From the name too, I want to know, like, did you already have thoughts over what the episode was going to cover? It's Star Wars, it's punk music, it's band movie tropes. It is precisely my thing. I knew a little bit going into it. I knew Jessica Square Lego was part of the voice cast. I knew, you know, kind of the idea behind it. It's so much. It's, it is easily my favorite in terms of pure fun of the series. I, I love, you know, again, like, I never thought a band movie would work in the context of the Star Wars universe, but I was so thoroughly impressed with what they were able to do with it. The main characters all have this great camaraderie and this kind of, you know, rebels slash you know a new hope style like this weird collection of again going back to like the archetypes of star wars and again recontextualizing it i love the idea of like the context between like a lost youngling child and like you know a rebellious hut kid and then like the weird you know guy with like the three heads and then like how boba fett plays all into it like the music is actually really good like i don't know if joseph gordon levitt had a hand in writing it all but it's all really like solid you know just you know get pump your fist you know pop punk music um, and I like how it ends. Like it ends with this really optimistic, cool note. And I just had so much fun with it. I would easily go back to this. I think centering around this uh, teen punk, like, I mean, in my head, they're teens. And yeah, like the youngling, uh, the, um, what is Jabba's race? What are they called? The huts. The huts. Yeah. And seeing the, the young hut uh, with the nose ring just, you know, makes you laugh because these are versions of our characters or characters in this universe that we've never seen um, iterated like this. So it, it just put a smile on my face to see the level of creativity that some of these uh, studios or that all of these studios have brought to uh, this universe that we all know and love. Um, seeing Boba Fett, you know, you will not see popular characters in every episode, but there are some names and faces that you will recognize. Uh, and I think that this series really serves to um and brandon you can correct me on this because i think you may know more on the lore because i'm just strictly like a movies and video games um that's all i've taken in so far well tattooing rhapsody um I, I liked returning to familiar settings in tattooing rhapsody we are in moss espa which is the uh, pod race um setting that we all can recognize i'm sure um and then tattooing i love how much focus they put on like the tattooing sons because we all know uh tattooing has two sons um, and so you see them rise and fall, um, across any time we see Tatooine. Uh, Sam, how did you like episode two? The Chibi thing. Like, I just thought it was funny to go from duel to Chibi Rhapsody band, band storyline. And I just thought that was pretty fun. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, the, the kind of Japanese anime that follows like the high schoolers where it's like a little bit more playful. It has more freedom to do that. And I thought that's exactly what this was. So yeah, that was one of the episodes where it's just pure fun. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, it's not my favorite one of the three that I saw though. So it's actually going to be the next one. The twins. 
Yes, it is the twins episode. And so I honestly really loved that one so much between the art style um, out of the first three that I saw, the twins was by far my favorite, the, just the animation style. It was super colorful, especially with that last fight. It was just gorgeous with all the different colors. And, um, I, I'm curious to know more, both like from Brandon and Noah, how much you might know about like the lore with it. But did the sister Am, did she have like some kind of robotic thing that made her wield multiple lightsabers or something? Because for me, it, as a side note, I'm I only know Star Wars from like movies. That's that's honestly really it. Um, and I'm pretty new to the the series myself. I think I first started watching it like maybe five years ago. <laughs> so I'm I'm late to the party, but here happily, anyways. <laughs> I think it was more, this ref- this episode was more of a reflection of, you know, what Luke and Leia could have been. And I know that it's, you know, supposed to be, uh, I know that it's supposed to be post-episode nine, which is a little weird to me. Um, but, but again, that's my canon brain going, oh, that doesn't work, but maybe that could work. Oh, I don't know. Um, but I like the idea of kind of, you know, what Luke and Leia could have been in a different time. Allison Brie is unrecognizable in this. Like, I I knew it was Neil Patrick Harris. I didn't know who the female was. Like, that's Allison Brie, wow. Um, and I like sort of, you know, the interaction between, like, the droid. That whole, like, final fight sequence took me a minute to kind of, you know, grasp what the animation was doing because like, it's not, like, super defined line works. It's sort of, like, you know, like flowing lightning, like, kind of pastel colors, so to speak. And, you know, it, it worked. It just took me more of a minute to kind of, you know, get it. But once I did, you're right, It's it's stunning. I would also just simply add this and the Ninth Jedi, which we may touch on. These are the two that I could see something spinning out of. Like, I know they were supposed to be one-offs, but I think there is enough lore to this one between the dynamic between the siblings, you know, post-Rise of Skywalker and everything, and what we will talk about with Ninth Jedi. I think there is enough there to explore So, if so they wanted to. But that's, you know, my fanboy brain talking. I mean, now that you've both, uh, you know, we, we've done coverings of the first three, uh, Brandon, you know, I do want to talk about the remainder of the series, but... Do you think you have any more like blankets? Do you think you have any additional like blanket statements that you want to apply to the series as a whole? Or do you, if you want to dive into some of those episodes, um, I've up until seven, I, I think I could, you know, go back and forth with you on eight and nine was around the time that I started feeling like, okay, I need to, you know, I can't watch this right now. I need to come back to it because it, it was starting to fade like my, my attention. At eight, I will have words. I think eight is actually really good, but nine, I, I think nine is good. The problem is, I think, I don't think nine works as a finale because, you know, without spoiling too much, it kind of ends on a bit of a dour note, um, which I think for this kind of makes the whole thing feel pseudo poetic in a way that I don't necessarily works for this, especially considering how lighthearted something like Toby is, like between that and uh, Tatooine Rhapsody. Like when you have episodes like that, that could end on, you know, more positive universal notes. I don't think it totally works. Um, but as far as just blanket statements on visions go, I think this is an experiment that I have my doubts about that I think could have gone in, I think, a bit too niche of a direction. And yet so many of these studios managed to lock on and make so many of these things stand out more that really been really oppressed by it. And I hope we do get that season two that's been rumored. And I'm only taking a minute to uh, to rank them out. Oh, yeah. If that's the case, then I'll just talk briefly. But um, I think Toby, the fifth episode, the sixth episode, my apologies, if that stuck a lot with, I know I've seen a lot of people kind of, you know, raking on it, just like, oh, it's, you know, this really kitty thing. And, you know, how is he able to be an Inquisitor and all this? And it, I would respond with, if you've ever been a kid playing with lightsabers or like playing, you know, Star Wars role playing or anything like that, just as a kid, you will identify with this on some level because Toby is, I forget the child actor's name, but he is playing it so 
so completely adept to anyone who has gone through that experience of like idolizing the Jedi and like idolizing their accomplishments and like that. And I really just fell in love with it. Um, Akakiri, which is the finale, I saw a lot of parallels to Anakin in there, and I think it really works. I don't think the animation the animation is really jarring in that one. I didn't totally buy into it. Um, but also Lorraine Toussaint as the uh, villain Inquisitor, amazing, total queen. And then if I have to just point out anything else, I think the Elder is taking much more of that sort of Ronin samurai thing to the next level that I think the duel couldn't do. So in that sense, I like it a bit more. And the voice cast is great for that one. Uh, we do want to provide the listeners with a listening or sorry, a viewing order. Uh, this is just our personal takes on uh, what will give you like kind of like the best of what Star Wars Visions has to offer. Uh, so myself and Brandon will go ahead and give you that. Uh, keep in mind, at least for mine, I'm going to exclude eight and nine for my listing. Um, but uh, Brandon, if you could start, then I'll go ahead and follow you. From nine to one, Akakiri, uh, the village bride, the duel, Lapin Ocho, Toby, the Elder, the Twin, the Night Jedi, and then a number one, Tatooine Rhapsody. All right. A little surprise there for number one. Uh, I'm going I to just get... loved it so much. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't apologize. No, that yet. episode was entirely a Brandon episode. I'm watching. I'm like, oh, Brandon's going to love this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm only human. Like it. <laughs> All right. So I'm following the order uh, from bottom to top. So uh, do not be surprised. Don't come after me. But at the seventh place in my ranking, I have the twins. Uh, following that is the village bride at number six. Uh, taking place number five is the elder. Uh, four is the ninth Jedi. Three is Toby. I actually, I absolutely adored seeing a droid, um, you know, idolize these Jedi and ultimately, um, you know, feel what it's like to, to have to hold that kind of a destiny in your hands. And then, uh, from two, it is Tatooine Rhapsody and one is the duel for no other reason than, uh, these are at the very beginning of the series. And I think they, they push a lot of the weight for me to believe that this is going to be a series, um, that I want to be invested in. I think one and two, uh, they really did give me the range of what they could do. I know I'll return to eight and nine by the time we record next, but yeah, it was a great series. I'm very happy to have watched this. All right. So then that'll wrap our conversation with Star Wars Visions. Thank you, everybody. And so we'll go on ahead to the next um, part of our segment about only murders in the buildings. All three of us caught up on all the episodes that are available on Hulu right now through episode six. And so I know that we wanted to kind of review this and analyze like what's happening with the story at this point. And so I, I think I'll toss it over to uh, Brandon first and then, and then Noah just to see like, what are what are your thoughts on what's happened so far? Because a lot has happened since, and in my opinion, it's only gotten better from, you know, each episode going on. Yeah, this has been a surprisingly dense show for, you know, a half an hour, nine to ten episode murder mystery comedy hybrid. Again, I'm really liking all of these. Um, five in particular, uh, episode five in particular, I really love just because of kind of the, you know, the stuff we get with Oscar's return. We get sort of his reconciliation of his uh, relationship with Mabel. We get a lot of reveals about uh, Tim's sort of backstory. And we get some really nice kind of, you know, I think needed banter between Charles and Oliver uh, in the uh, in the car with the, uh, what's it called? Like the plant podcast guys and kind of, you know, that thing of, oh yeah, you guys are not as high as you think you are. Like, I know that, and I, it's nice that we've gotten out of sort of the, the air of, you know, pretentiousness of the Arconia which is, it's cool. I love that era, but like that, that's part of what makes the show great. But I love getting out of there and like, you know, seeing them all in kind of, you know, newer environments, but newer characters and things like that. But again, it's the reveals and it's everything with, you know, Tim and seemingly with um, 
um, with Nathan Lane's character, the deli owner, who I keep forgetting his name, um, but who is you know terrific and I again adds more development to a side character that I think could have been so one note um, and only goes into episode six further with all of the um, with stuff with Tina Fey's character and the stuff with the uh, with the detective character. I'm loving a lot of this and I'm loving it in ways that I was not expecting it to. Yeah, I think a big takeaway for me was when I watched episode four and four is titled the sting. So they're, they're investigating sting as a, as a prime suspect for the murder um, of Tim Kono, as well as the poisoning of, um, of Min, of, uh, I, I believe, Winnie, I was going to say Minnie, of Winnie. <laughs> and so uh, that episode stood out for me because of the Bugs Bunny and Porky, uh, you know, visualization. Uh, we have Brazos, who is working on his love life throughout that episode. He is admiring and uh, being flirty with a, a sousaphone, no, a baritone, a bassoon player, a bassoon player who lives several levels uh several levels beneath his own home and also across the way so they can actually uh, play music together we hear them communicating through song their level of flirting just like you know transcends communication they're just playing with each other and ultimately it leads to her uh walking upstairs and inviting him to dinner um which he just like butchers the first date and we know that we can expect that from him because of how um, nervous he is of how like um he does have like some um, some past experiences that have led him to just be like more reserved when it comes to his love life. Um, but, but I really liked seeing this, this version of Brazos's character. And we're wondering why these freaking uh, mascots of Bugs Bunny and Porky just appear out of nowhere on his couch. And we're like, as a viewer, you're told like not to worry about it because they're just there out of nowhere. And, and then they're there again and suddenly nobody else can see them. So then you're like, Oh, like, this is in Brazos's head. So I think the, you know, the, the trailing along those, uh, those breadcrumbs and then ultimately him telling us like why they're still around, um, I think was, was, was very, was very nice to see. I think it was impactful. It still was emotional and it made me care about his character more. Uh, I think that's what this show does uh, just excellently is just show us why all these characters matter. Uh, Mabel is, is becoming increasingly um, involved with the case because of her history with Tim Kono and the recently um, released uh, Oscar who uh, they, you know, there is a time, there is a time span of 10 years between Oscar being locked up and um was it the death of one of their former, one of their former friends? Zoe's yeah. death. Zoe's death. And so what, what I question is like the ages of Tim Kono and his friends, because there was a 10 year gap. Are we believing that uh, Mabel is like close approaching 30? Like, was she 18, like 19? I, you know? I think the implication is that they were like in early twenties at the time. And now they're all kind of early thirties, late twenties. Okay. Um, I just wasn't, I wasn't reading that initially, but I, I was playing with the numbers in my head and I'm like, okay, so they weren't like 16, like, you know, they were going out to these parties and getting involved in all these different areas. Um, but that's all I wanted to say was episode four really stuck out for me for that. Sam, how have you been feeling with the series? Yeah, I, I feel like all these episodes, you know, whoever put them together in that order with the writing did a really good job because I feel like they all fit perfectly well in their timing as in fourth episode for example i think that we <clears throat> really delved into charles's character way more and it was really needed in my opinion because it kept getting teased all the time you're curious about 
like more about Charles's character and why he is the way he is sometimes. And there were kind of hints at his love life or somebody in his life. And so, and clearly he's had this chemistry with Jan. So it's just like, where, where is his story? What's going on with him? So that fourth one was really fun for me too. And honestly, I'm going to call it now. I'm really sus of, of Jan. I really am because I feel like she is such a nice character so far. She's been displayed very well and very mild mannered. And I'm just very concerned that she's going to have something to do with it and come out of left field. So I'm sus, but otherwise. <laughs> Look, all, all I'm saying is that Amy Ryan is the only person in the main cast who seems to have no connections to the murder. So. Exactly. And she's just kind of there to be the love interest. Mm, I don't know about that. So I'm very suspicious of that. The fourth episode, I think, was really well done. And then going to the fifth one with the twist and everything involved, and we see a bit more of tie-dye guy. And then the sixth, we get more delved into um, Mabel's story and just more about her background. And so for me, I feel like the ending of six was the most profound for me because kind of like to what you both mentioned, we see a bit more of Nathan Lane. And I feel like if any episode or, or just any TV show movie underused Nathan Lane, that's a, a big problem because he's just phenomenal. And so I'm glad that we're seeing more of his character get a spotlight than just a cameo of Nathan Lane. You know, like, I just think that this could really end up being something interesting. Maybe it's a red herring for the situation, but not sure. Um, it's, it's fun either way. So yeah, I think for me, this, the end of six was like the one that stood out the most, like the big, biggest, best moment. But then otherwise I did really enjoy four as well. There's something about learning more about Charles that was so interesting to me. Putting aside, you know, the 20 plus year age gap between Steve Martin and Amy Ryan, I do think they are legitimately wonderful together. Like they have really yeah, agreed. I, I know that's a thing that's going to be pointed out. And I, I get that. Um, I would also like with Lucy, we've also been wondering about the whole, you know, Lucy question that gets revealed a lot in four. And like, I love that scene when he's coming clean to Jan in the hallway of just like, this is everything. And she just accepts that. And I'm like, that's a good relationship. I hope that she's not the murderer. But then even more so, there's, you know, the Teddy Dina stuff in Six that you were kind of, you know, pointing out. And that comes completely out of left field. Um, but again, it's one of those things that the show has been doing so well, which is with, between that and the Sting thing and uh, with Tina Fey's cameo of kind of giving you these things and giving you kind of very obvious you know, ideas of what they are. Pulling it from under the rug and going, no, that's not what you thought, you idiot. Like, there's way more to this and we are not giving you easy answers. And I'm really appreciating that. So in my opinion, just out of the three, if we're talking about favorites here, um, I would say that the fourth one was probably my favorite just because out of the three, it's not as seriously connected to, to the murder, but it's, it's more of an insight on Charles's character. So for me, that one was my favorite, but the sixth one, in my opinion, had the best moment with that cliffhanger that the episode ended on. Yeah, episode one was my favorite. I did love the pilot, uh, but I'm I'm going episode five now. I love the reveals of it. I love the you know kind of dueling storylines of the two, and I love how it all coalesces together at that t- at that tattoo parlor. I'm going to um, choose four. I think that um, investigating Sting as a suspect was done so I, I couldn't. I was like stopping every time that they they would call him Sting because uh, they say it like in the in the middle of every sentence, uh, and nobody believes him. And then even when Tina Fey's character points it out, I think on episode six she points out she's describing the podcast on uh, Jimmy Fallon, and she does it so hilariously. Like uh, ultimately for them, it means viewership, it means numbers, but she does it in a way that's a little insulting. <laughs> and so but but that's not done in episode four uh i like episode four 
Um, again, because this is a show where they are solving a murder. Like there is very serious investigation going on between these. It's funny to call it serious between these three characters. Uh, but even then they still have these like very, very manageable, like comedic moments, especially, uh, well, me, I'm, I love Steve Martin's character. And so, um, any long time spent with him, uh, the more and more we can learn about him and, and what he's been through, uh, I, I adore. So that, that's why episode four actually was stand out for me. Fair enough. And I can't wait till three weeks from now when this will all be out. Like, I can't wait because I want more of this, but I can't wait till three weeks from now when we actually wrap all of this up and, you know, are able to just feel whatever goes down with it. Let's move on now to, of course, directorial debuts. It is that time of the show where we go into a uh, where a certain director, uh, their first project or their earliest project, if it's available. Uh, we've tackled uh, Spike Lee before. We've tackled Tim Burton. And this week, we are tackling Ryan Coogler's 2013 debut, Fruitvale Station. Uh, this is, of course, based on the 2009 uh, events that, caused, that led to the death of uh, Oscar Grant, a man in uh, Oakland, California, by uh, BART Police. It stars Michael B. Jordan in one of his uh, one of his earlier prominent film roles, I should say. This was you know coming off of the wire in Friday Night Lights. He was uh, transitioning into the film. This is also his first collaboration with Ryan Coogler. Of course, they would work together later on on Creed as well as uh, Black Panther. Focuses on the last day of Oscar Grant's life uh, on December thirty first, two thousand eight. Uh, he is he's kind of cheating on his wife a little bit. They have a daughter. Uh, the wife is played by uh, Melanie Diaz. They have a daughter, it's, and it's basically going through an entire day. He is losing his job at a uh, at a bakery slash delicatessen. He has a couple friends that he runs into. He helps a woman uh, prepare a fish fry for New Year's, and he and his girlfriend and his friends all go into the city on BART. There is an altercation on the train between uh, between Oscar and one of his former uh, prison inmates, who was also out of the cell. And then uh, San Francisco police show up at the station, and things go down from there. Uh, so, no, I want to get your uh, thoughts first and foremost. Uh, how familiar were you with uh, Kugler's filmography, I should say? And how how much do you think Fruitvale Station lasts in between the legacy of bigger projects such as Creed and Black Panther? I realized that I had actually seen some of Ryan Kugler's work, but initially, no, I wasn't aware that um, the other projects uh, were done by Ryan Kugler. So I wasn't as informed on the director. I don't think that I could view this movie um, in the same, like, same perspective as we viewed the others, I think because of the, like the story being told here is not one that we can expect to follow like the three act structure or, you know, um, waiting for all of these like early foreshadowing things to come into play because this really is just a retelling of the final moments of um, Oscar, Oscar Grant's last day uh, before he was shot and eventually um, died from his wounds by police. Uh, I think that, uh, some some standout things here are, of course, Michael B. Jordan's performance. Um, we are not surprised that he that Ryan Cooler went on to work with uh, Jordan in Creed, um, as well as the Black Panther. Um, I loved seeing Octavia Spencer. This film, I um, I mean, it was hard to watch, right? Like it, it was it's a it's a story that we unfortunately sounds all too familiar for um, for. Um, situations of police brutality, um, abusing their power, especially against black victims and leading to, um, their death. And so, uh, watching this movie, I, I was unaware of the Oscar Grant story. Um, I'm happy to be informed about it now. Uh, but, you know, right off the back, you know, at least you know the direction of this tale because we are shown, 
Um, from what I understand, it was the footage that was captured on that day, uh, right outside the station where um, the officers were holding down Oscar Grant um, before firing. And it's at that firing of the sh- of the bullet that uh, the movie starts. I, I don't know. I think that I was watching this and it didn't feel uh, like a movie. It felt like, you know, uh, it was a retelling of of his of his last days. So uh, I was watching it with like a different perspective. That being said, there wasn't any part of this movie that felt lackluster. Like I didn't think that, you know, expectations for the writing. Um, it's very true to life. Like you're not getting any long winded like dialogues of, you know, somebody's morale or somebody's like, you know, heroism uh you're really just getting the day-to-day this man really was you you shown how great of a father he was what was always a scene to to pay attention to in this movie was any engagement between octavia spencer and michael b jordan uh playing his mother i think that just watching their relationship was both like is very real but then ultimately like very heartbreaking so yeah a lot of emotions for this movie i'd like to uh you know let's toss to sam sam how was your viewing experience yeah, I had ever, I'd never heard of Oscar Grant's story myself either. I'd heard of Fruitvale Station and I heard phenomenal things about it, but just never got around to watching it. And so I'm glad. Another reason why I'm happy for the segment is that it forces us to watch these things that we haven't watched yet. And I, I really enjoyed it. It, to me, it felt like it was genuinely aware of situations that really plague modern day, like police brutality. Um, I, I don't know if any of you guys saw The Hate You Give, but when I first saw that, it, it was a really good movie and I still really like it. I just feel like in a way, because it came out when this topic was kind of a hot topic, it was sensitive for a lot of people at the current time. Um, it just it feels like the Black Lives Matter movement is way more relevant at this specific time and moment than it might have been back in 2013. I feel like there was that was kind of the start of more and more pop culture awareness of the BLM movement. And so it, it feels like in a way, because this movie was in 2013 before things kind of skyrocketed to a sense, um, it felt very genuine to me, you know, and I thought that it was a really well done movie. The acting is great. And of course we all know that Ryan Coogler really just enjoys Michael B. Jordan. So I'm, I'm always glad to see any work that they're doing together. Um, but it's just a, a really good movie. In my opinion, I like the pacing of it. it. It clocks in just about like an hour and 30, I believe. So it's um, pretty fairly short. Um, but I think the pacing is super good. And there's something like you said, that was tragic about that, you know, that ending scene. And that kind of took me by surprise by how brutally honest it was. It really didn't hold back in my opinion on the aftermath of what happens to Oscar Grant after he shot. And so it was just heartbreaking to see that. And, um, and there were kind of a couple times in the movie where I thought it was a little cheesy, like, like, you know, what's going to eventually happen to Oscar Grant because it was set up in the beginning. And so there are times when like, you know, he's talking to Octavia Spencer, who plays his mom and is just like, oh, yeah, take the train. And you're like, oh, you know where this is going. The way stories set things up like that, when you know the outcome, to me, it's kind of cheesy. And I understand why they do that as a storytelling technique. But it's like, to me, it makes it a little more cheesy. Anyways, uh, I overall did really enjoy the movie and I'm glad I saw it. So how about you, Brandon? I'll admit I was late to the Fruitvale station train. I remember hearing the buzz around it in 2013 and just kind of thinking I'd get to it eventually. And I did eventually get to it when Creed came out and I heard that this was, you know, the movie came before it. And I remember being really impressed by it, but I, it wasn't until I rewatched it last night that I realized just how emotional it is. Uh, and I don't usually go to Rotten Tomatoes synopses for these, but I, I think it was a perfect sum up where they describe it as a celebration of life and a condemnation of death as they describe it. And I think that is a perfect way to describe this because I think the first half of this movie is so, it's so vibrant, energetic, and Michael B. Jordan, truly amazing in this. He plays, 
and just as his father to uh, Ariana Neal, who plays Tatiana, I managed to get the name. They have such a wonderful relationship in this. I love his chemistry with Melanie Diaz. His his one scene with uh, Octavia Spencer in the jail is so incredibly poignant and raw. And it, I think it really stinks to the depth of who Oscar was, which is someone who was trying above everything else to just do right by his family and just be a good guy and have a job and be able to you know support the people he cared about. And that through line of the character is never lost throughout the movie. Even, you know, by the time he eventually dies, he's, you know, his last words are, I, I have a daughter. And if you don't get choked up watching that, I don't think this is going to affect you. And Kugler's direction in this, between like sort of like the handheld shots, which actually Rachel Morrison, who uh, shot Black Panther, is also uh, the cinematographer on this. And the way that they sort of get it is like this kind of almost home video stock style shaky cam, which I know we, we're all kind of critical of shaking cam, but I think this is one of the instances where I, I would argue it really truly works, especially in the BART sequences. The whole alteration between the police officers and uh, the relationship with Katie, the girl who he finds on the subway again, like, and again, through all, all of it, Kugler masters, and you mentioned, Sam, this is like under 90 minutes. It is such a masterfully paced movie. Everything about this ebbs and flows exactly when it needs to. So when that halfway point gets there, when he has to say goodbye to his daughter and you immediately get that thing in the back of your head of, that's right, we saw the opening scene, we know where this is going, and we just have to go along for the ride. And Kugler knows that. He knows that you have to get attached to this on some level so that when the bad things go down, you will feel this. And you know, obviously that translates way more to the real life trauma that, you know, Tatiana Grant and Wanda Johnson and those people in that train felt that day versus, you know, the characters in the film. But I think it translates so well here regardless. Like I originally said that Creed was, you know, Kugler's best film. I would argue that this is. I think it is concise enough. I think it's well acted enough. I think it is pointing enough both to the moment of police brutality and also the very long tragedy and very longs that have led us to that point. And I, I think it is truly brilliant. And I'm just, I'm just sorry that I missed out on it sooner. Yeah. And I, I think with that, then we could just go on to a quick rating and I think close. So um, we'll, I'll go ahead and start with the rating. I, I'd say for me, this was a pretty solid, like eight, eight and a half. I, I really enjoyed the movie a lot. And to Brandon's point, yeah, like I think all of us are critical about shaky cam at some point, but this was appropriate. It was done appropriately when it needed to be done. And so um, just overall for, for the, masterful pacing and for the story itself yeah i'd go with like a solid eight and a half i was originally going to stick with a nine and then i remember the scene towards the end where melanie diaz is picking up her daughter and there's just that break in her voice of like go back to sleep go back to sleep and that brought a tear to my end i'm like all right any movie that's going to make me cry gets up a brownie point so it's a 9.5 i think this is truly tremendous if if you only know kugler from his bigger budget films go back and visit this it is worth the watch again it's it's a hard watch in the second half but it is truly worth it of course with like so so many minimal complaints uh, or minimal like negatives that we have for this film and for this to be his first work uh yeah. first feature work like talk about being um like ambitious this was a story uh here it says 2009 was the death of oscar grant so this is merely four years after um and it could, it could be a tragedy if this was done incorrectly or if this was done inappropriately but it comes off just very um raw and emotional uh i'm gonna go i'm right there with you sam i think i'll give it an eight and a half um I think it's it's just very telling for what he what he wants to accomplish with his career, uh, Ryan Coogler. And for this to be your first work, it's like, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Totally. Uh, so, again, Fruitvale Station is streaming on Netflix and is also available on VOD if you want to go check it out. We all recommend you do. 
That will wrap it up for today's episode of Plot Devices, episode six. Thank you so much for tuning in to Mass and Murderers and Mass Murderers and Mario, the biggest mass murderer of all. And I'm going to stop doing tongue twists before my tongue falls out of my mouth. Listen, while you've got us, uh, new episodes drop every Sunday afternoon. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Plot Devices, go follow us there. And go follow us on social media as well at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Plot Devices Pod. I want to, of course, thank the rest of the team for uh, stopping by and helping us you know, do the show as we do today. Samantha and Corvaya, of course, joining us today. Sam, where can people find you and uh, what do you got going on in your life? Yeah, I got uh, my Twitter account, which is at S underscore in Corvaya. And then I've also got my Instagram, which is at Sam, I am 520. I do have many saints of Newark coming up for a review with ASU Odyssey online. And of course I'll bring it up here. So that I'm excited about. And we've also got tons of like really cool movies coming up in um, our docket. So I guess stay tuned for that. Our other co-host for today, Noah Guzman. Noah, thank you for joining us. And uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at J-S-Y-K-N-O-W-A, uh, just so you know. Um, be changing that soon, maybe. And then some work that I'm completing in the next week is I'm writing a review uh, for Odyssey Online. Uh, I'll be watching My Name is Polly Murray. Um, I don't think I've reviewed a documentary before, so I can't wait to see um, like how, how to accomplish this. I will also be sharing um, my thoughts next week on No Time to Die. So I hope you are holding out for that because I absolutely cannot wait. Uh, Yeah, thank you all for tuning in. Finally going to get the Bond fandom on board of our podcast. Uh, You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Go follow my band, Cablebox, uh, at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. And I will also be guesting on the latest episode of No Capes Required with uh, Sky Merida, friend of the show. Go check that out once that drops. uh, Their social media is uh, at Zero Capes Required. Go check that out there. So once again, uh, for myself, from Noah Guzman, from Samantha and Corvaya, this has been Plot Devices, and we will see you guys next time. Beep, 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 beep.